This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Speak truth. Speak truth. We start. This is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the And Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me. And the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, we talked about the Bears uh, a couple weeks ago. You had imagined that they improved their offensive line. They really hadn't, but you had imagined that they had. But one good thing happened in week one. They did get a victory over the San Francisco 49ers. So we can celebrate that. Now, it's a little bit bittersweet for me. As I've said before, one of my high school friends growing up was was Kyle Shanahan, who's the coach of uh, the 49ers. So I wish it was at the expense of another team. But as a Bears fan, I will take a victory anywhere that I can get it, man. How you, how you feeling about that victory, Chris? Well, you know, I think the most important thing is that they did win. You know, and right now, there's only been one game. So... Uh, we're having a perfect season. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm very excited about the possibilities here. It is a perfect season so far. So we'll hold on to that. Uh, my Commodores are two and one. We took an L to, to Wake Forest. So I, I wasn't too excited about that. I had just bragged and somebody mentioned it online. I had just bragged a whole bunch about uh, the Florida Gators. They end up falling to uh, Kentucky. It looks like when it comes to the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, that it's going to be a lot of beating up on each other. Uh, uh, Georgia just jumped over Alabama to be number one in the nation. Just a lot of good teams. You got Arkansas coming up. I think you have Tennessee's about to play. Is it Tennessee and Florida about to play? There's just a lot of good games, man, going on in the SEC. You got the Big Ten, too, but nobody wants to talk about that. So on to other things. Um, one of the things we want to do for y'all, and we, you know, we've been talking about this for a while. We're going to be expanding some of our content. We wanted to not only have you listen to us, but we thought some of you might actually want to see us. And so our plan is to start putting these episodes on YouTube. We're also going to do what we said we were going to do and, and make sure for those of you who are Patreons, uh, supporting us on patreon.com, we're going to take you know some time after each episode to answer some of your questions and that'll be for premium folks who are actually supporting us on on patreon so we're going to start getting some of that stuff going hopefully y'all can view us on for y'all that 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 can uh listen and maybe want to watch uh you'll be able to have that chance on youtube moving forward so we're trying to grow we appreciate all your support and as always we want to give a shout out to our sponsor the fetzer institute for supporting us in what we do and how we do it also shout out to the the uh all the people that give us small large donations we greatly appreciate that we would not be able to do it without you 
But Chris, as usual, we got a lot of good stuff to talk about, a lot of stuff that I think our audience is going to want to hear. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. All right, Chris, uh, again, let me let me start with a little scripture. It says at one time we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's my paraphrasing of Titus chapter three, verse three. Now, I'm going to be 100 with you, Chris. I don't know much at all. I don't know anything about the monarchy of the United Kingdom. For better or worse, I've never paid much attention to the crown, probably because I just never found it to be relevant to my life, never found it to be relevant to anything that I was doing. And so I just was kind of bored by that. I was never entertained by it. Now, I'll admit that I did try to watch the TV show, The Crown. I think that's what it's called based on the recommendation of a friend. But I don't even think I made it through one episode. I just wasn't intrigued, wasn't interested in what was going on now. That is not an implied criticism of those who are intrigued by the royal family. I have friends who are. It's not my cup of tea. But, Chris, I surely have some peculiar interests that I'm sure some of our audience would find pretty boring. Uh, So, you know, this isn't a matter of me uh, uh, of any superiority on my part. That's just not the thing that I find to be interesting. Now, I do remember this, though, Chris. I do remember that people seem to have really liked Princess Diana. And I do remember her death and how tragic her death was and how the world responded. I can't even remember. I mean, that was years ago, but I do remember that. And then I've heard as of late that there's been some beef between the queen and uh, Prince Harry's wife. And some people think race is playing a role in it. I couldn't say if it is or it isn't. I'm not really following that closely. But that's as much as I really know about all this stuff that's going on. That That's the extent of my understanding. So honestly, I'm, I'm pretty clueless about all this stuff. But by now, everybody knows, I'm sure, that Queen Elizabeth II uh, died last week at the age of 99. She was the longest reigning monarch in Britain's history. Uh, so that is a big deal. People around the world have been mourning her death and uh, just kind of remembering her legacy. Uh, and so that's been all over the media. And you, you'd have to be uh, pretty much under a rock not to have encountered some of that. Now, of course, as is always the case, there's people who aren't, aren't mourning her death and that's their right. And then you even have some people who aren't permitted to mourn her death based on their identity or based on the peer pressure that's coming from some people on social media. As always, in the gracious world and the charitable world of social media, People are getting dragged for offering condolences. Some people are going so far, Chris, as to say that offering these condolences is a is evidence of self-hate and brainwashing. If you let some folks tell it, if you want to be seen as authentic, you couldn't feel any kind of sympathy in relation to the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Not even for her children, not for her grandchildren. Those are just the rules that are set down by, I guess, the custodians of the culture, at least on on social media. In other words, according to some social media influencers uh, who Chris might follow, but I don't really follow their uh, their prescriptions. um, According to these social media influencers, people of color were not supposed to mourn the death of the queen on social media. People 
uh, were getting called out left and right uh, for express expressing any level of grief for that death. That's just how it goes, I guess, on social media. Now, Chris, one of the awkward things that I found on social media is the moment when you see friends liking posts that you wouldn't expect them to like. Right. So sometimes that can really throw you off. You're like, man, I didn't think so and so would actually like a post like that. And I personally had some friends that I saw liking some posts again that I just didn't expect them to like posts that I found to be nasty. Some of them were mean. Some of them I found to be spiteful and demeaning surrounding this whole issue. And so I was surprised a few times by friends who were post who were liking those posts or somehow promoting those posts on different social media uh, platforms. Now, I don't have any condemnation for them, for those friends. It's, that's not really what this is about. I'm not even sure this is deep enough to even take it there. But it is something that I noticed, Chris. Right. It, it didn't go unnoticed on my end. Now, I want to be clear because this is, I think, somewhat of a complex issue. People shouldn't have to run away from the truth, though. And you know we stand on the truth when it comes to the Church Politics Podcast. No one should be expected to overlook Britain's wrongdoing throughout history. And I'm certainly not here to defend any of that wrongdoing whatsoever. The fact is, Britain has a long and deadly history of colonialism. Of colonialism in Africa, uh, in the Caribbean in Asia, and the effects of that colonialism are still being felt by many of those people. And that, that's serious business. That's not something we're, we're going to joke around about or ignore. And the queen is a significant part of that history. And many people have suffered mightily because of colonial greed, uh, colonial supremacy, and all kinds of exploitation. Those are just the facts. And this is no small matter and it shouldn't be romanticized. In my opinion, Britain still has wrongs that it hasn't righted. It still has debts that it has failed to repay the victims of its colonial ambitions. And it still has demons that it has yet to face. Many of the riches that pay for the fine clothes and the palaces were ill gotten if you want to look at the history of it. Much of that stuff was acquired through exploitation and theft. There's no other way to put uh, no other way to put it. And so calls for reparations have in the, throughout history have been quashed. Right. They uh, advocates have been unjustly imprisoned and some of them have even been killed. For example, and one of the examples that I would guess that many of you would know is that you can't think about the horrors that South African leader Nelson Mandela experienced without including Britain's colonial legacy. From childhood, he, he is told in, uh, before that he grew up in a system that tried to make his culture seem inferior to British culture. Mandela somehow avoided being completely indoctrinated by British culture, but it's something that he had to experience. He somehow kept in touch with his tribal upbringing, which is why he was so uh, big on fighting against uh, apartheid. But we know that South Africans for far too long suffered under apartheid, under British colonial government. And that should not and cannot be forgotten. So. With that history in mind, with that context in mind, 
how ought we as Christians deal with the queen's death? Do we all need to deal with it the same way? Do we have to give a loud public condolence or some sort of resounding outcry for all to hear? I'm not sure that we do. Do we have to ignore the painful history and downplay the devastating impact of British colonialism? I personally think that would be a serious mistake, if not an injustice to do so, to approach it that way. But at the same time, Chris, I'll say this, and I'm about to pass it to you. Celebrating the death and making cruel jokes about the royal family seems inappropriate to me. Now, some of it may have been in good fun, I guess. I'll let you be the judge of that. I don't want to be legalistic about it. But I'll be honest with you, some of the stuff I saw seemed hateful. Some of the commentary that I saw uh, getting mad at people for, for showing some type of sympathy really seemed hateful. It seems like you were trying to draw people into your hatred, into your disdain, into your contempt. Now, at the beginning of this uh, episode, I I read Titus 3. And in Titus 3, Paul is describing, in that part of it, Paul is describing the difference between life as a a pagan and life after receiving Christ. And this is what he said. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. A lot of what I saw on social media being promoted by some Christians, again, seemed hateful, seemed to be filled with vitriol. And we know that a lot of truth can be said in jest, but also a lot of hatred can be said in jest. So whether it was a joke or not, it can express things that we probably shouldn't be promoting. Now, I think and this is I give a lot of deference to this example, Chris. I think Nelson Mandela uh, had a much better approach than what I saw coming from a lot of people on social media, because what a lot of folks don't know and what I uh, learned from reading in preparation from this for this episode is that he, him and the queen actually became friends. And that's according to his people, according to his memoirs and things of that nature. After living through apartheid, after 27 years in prison, away from his family, away from his community, on Robben Island, the human rights legend, Nelson Mandela, was able to treat the queen respectfully and even be friendly. In his memoir, he wrote this, and some of you might want to cover your ears because it might not go along with your narrative. He wrote this, while I abhorred the notion of British imperialism, I never rejected the trappings of British style and manners. Hmm. It seems like, I could be wrong, Chris, and you may call me out on this. It seems like that we may be able to fight against injustice hold people accountable and be serious in doing that, because I don't know too many people who are more serious in doing that than Nelson Mandela, and not hate them after all. We might even be able to tenaciously reject parts of a certain culture while appreciating other parts of that same culture. Now, I know that's impossible on social media. Let y'all tell it. I know that's impossible in the culture war that we're all fighting right now. But we have to deal with the fact, whether you like it or not, that great minds and compassionate hearts in the past have accomplished that feat. 
And I will admit that it does take a larger degree of moral imagination than many of us seem to have today. And let's be honest, those it's not like those bitter and caustic tweets bring justice to the people that were exploited by British colonialism. It's not like we're letting we're giving that a pass. Right. But I do think, Chris, we have to think about what do those antagonistic posts accomplish? What do we get out of those posts? Right. Is this part of us being enslaved to all kinds of passions and pleasures? What pleasure do we get from tearing people down in that way rather than just dealing with the history in a real way and trying to fix things? So, Chris, how ought we as Christians deal with the death of the queen? So I, uh, I have to start by uh, saying that I am one who is pretty into uh, the British monarchy. Um, you know, I, I pay attention to, 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 the, to the monarchy and, uh, you know, I watch the crown, I watch the queen, I watch the king's speech. Um, you know, I, I, I watched the uh, platinum centennial uh, last year uh, when the queen celebrated her 70th year of her reign. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, this is one of the things that I sort of, you know, privately pay attention to. I'm, I'm, I'm big on the kind of, I think what I like is, is, uh, pomp and ceremony and the monarchy has plenty of that. Uh, I pastor a, a, uh, assembly of God church. I'm always encouraging the AG, uh, to be more like the church of God in Christ when it comes to, uh, you know, just like regalia and pomp and ceremony. Uh, so I'm, I'm into those things. Uh, and I should also say that since my congressional campaign, I've been on a very, very light social media diet just because post campaign, you know, trying to, uh, you know, be cognizant of my own sort of like mental and emotional well-being and social media is no place to, uh, you know. That's real, brother. Uh, wise words, my man. Uh, so I, I haven't seen you in, in preparation for this uh, podcast. I did go on and and look at some stuff, but I was not getting that stuff in real time. Uh, but my wife will tell you we were uh, up in Wisconsin when uh, the news of the queen uh, passing came across the wire. And I was walking around with my uh, iPhone on CNN with my AirPods in. Uh, you know, because my wife doesn't care about the the monarchy or the crown or anything like that, nor do my kids. But I was like, I want to, you know, be up on the coverage. So I'm I'm into this thing, and I, I totally get where people are coming from when it comes to the the very very terrible history of British colonialism. Uh, but two things, and, and you know, if if I come off as too much of a monarchy apologist, you know. Referred to to my uh, my opening salvo there, as they say, as they say, speak your truth, brother. <laughs> but you know, with with this particular monarch, you do have to pay attention to the fact that she actually presided over much of the decolonization of you know of, of Britain. Didn't do enough, in my opinion, uh, to uh, to pursue true reparation uh, to really own. The, the unimaginable, impossible to really articulate or ever write um, kind of, of real 
like high class evil that British colonialism wrought all across the world. Right. I don't think that that this monarch went far, far enough on those things, but she did preside over um, decolonization uh, and she did, you know, develop a relationship with Nelson Mandela. Uh, she, she did, you know, several things to try to move this country in the right direction. Uh, and hopefully it continues to move more aggressively uh, in that direction under the next monarch. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, and, and then the second thing, and probably the most important thing, is what you were talking about. Um, you know, you, you look at, uh, you know, the British colonial empire in 1952 compared to 2022. That looks very different. Um, can you appreciate that and still, you know, hold Britain accountable, demand more from uh, from the crown and the British government more uh, broadly, um, can you look at this this queen and see not only a monarch but like a person who who is for whatever you think about the the monarchy, these are still people, right? So this is still somebody's mother, somebody's grandmother, somebody's great grandmother. Can you have any compassion for the people who do? You know, have some affection for uh, for the queen and for the crown, right? You know, do you just dismiss their whatever compassion they have? I, I would, you know, I think it would be going a little bit too far beyond, you know, sort of family and close friends to call it suffering. But any compassion and feelings that people are having, do you just dismiss that based on your sort of ideological framework? Um, and and do you actually have, uh, as you so rightly described it, Justin, the moral imagination um, to at the same time, uh, look at a person's uh, life, look at a nation's history, appreciate the things uh, and celebrate the things that are uh, that are valuable contributions and still hold uh, room in your heart for accountability and justice seeking uh, in the places where that's necessary. Uh, and while it takes a lot to do that in like social media uh, and our, our broader context, that's really what we have to do with the life of every person, right? So as a as a pastor, I, I do way more than than I would like to participate uh, in funerals, oftentimes, presiding over those funerals. Uh, just did a funeral uh, a, a week ago. And every time, you know, I get ready to prepare for, for a funeral, you find yourself going through the same exercise, right? Uh, because every life has elements uh, that are, are dark and that you know hurt people and uh, cause real trouble and real pain um, and every life has elements that are beautiful that are good uh, that are worthy of uh, celebration and honor and one of the uh, sort of careful things that you have to do in uh, you know in, in pastoring people through uh, uh, loss and 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 certainly in, in presiding over funerals is figure out how to celebrate those things that deserve celebration uh, without sort of making light of those dark parts. Uh, and it's it's something that we all have to do. We all should be exercised in doing uh, because all of us are going to go through some, uh, some death. And I, I would just argue uh, that the moment of a person's death, uh, that season, those days and weeks in which people are actually mourning the the time of a person's passing to me are not the right time 
to to become very zealous for accountability and justice and talking about the stuff that was that was wrong. Um, now, if, if you are a person who were like in the fight for British colonial reparations for, you know, years and decades and, and that's like your thing, then, you know, that's your thing. Do your thing. But like folks who weren't thinking about, you know, the negative impact of British colonialism, you know, a week ago, and and when the queen passes, what it triggers in you first is like, you know, let's get mad, let's talk about the bad, let's demand justice. I don't gloss over those things, but I, I, I do urge us to take some moment of self-examination to say, why is that where my heart and my mind went um, at the moment of this uh, of this woman's passing? So that's that's sort of where I am on it. Um, you know, I'm I'm in conversation with with folks. We have a sister church in uh, in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, so I'm uh, looking forward to, to my next conversation with my um, my brother pastor over there in Cape Town, because uh, I am curious about how uh, this is being experienced in different parts of the uh, of the world. But yeah, you know, yeah, man, I mean, I'll, let me say this. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with British colonialism and the damage that it did. If you if you are one of those people, uh, the Internet's a beautiful thing. You can you can do some research and really I would recommend that you do some research and look at the impact that it's had on a lot of different places. Again, in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Asia, it's not a pretty thing. So do do that research to have a better understanding where, where people are coming from, because it, it's real, man. And. There may be ways that, you know, you can have influence or help some of the people that are still struggling with the impacts of that. Um, But at the same time, a lot of folks are just bitter, man. We got to be very careful buying into this type of business, because as you said, you got folks who never talked about this before, but they want to drag somebody on the Internet and say that they're uh, uh, brainwashed and uh, that they have self-hate just for expressing some kind of. Uh, sympathy towards certain people. You, we need to be able. To, we need to have the discernment to separate ourselves from that that type of silliness. And that doesn't mean that you can't tell the truth and you can't speak on it um, uh, when necessary. I'm, I'm all for that. But watch the bitterness, and then also realize if you look at the way people act, she's a person. She was put in a situation where I think, and you, you know, you said that she could have done more. At the same time, if we put ourselves in her shoes. A lot of folks I know aren't about to renounce their crown or any of the privileges that come with that crown either. So let's be honest and humble about what we would be willing to do in that particular situation. Does it justify it? Absolutely not. But it may bring a little bit of humility into the conversation and let us see it from from a perspective that's a little more accurate dealing with the depravity in our own hearts. Uh, And so I, I think those are some of the things that we have to deal with. Look, Let's tell the truth. Let's always be truthful about history. We can't fix things if we're not willing to uh, to admit where the problem came from, where the root of that is and who may be responsible for it. But at the same time, it's very easy to buy into the uh, the, the mindset, uh, the, the tribal mindset that we just need to attack anybody who doesn't uh, share our narrative or isn't going along with the furtherance of our narrative. I'll let yeah. you take us out, Chris. I won't explore this real much, but I will will suggest that uh, if you approach this only from that sort of like ideological uh, bifurcated tribalism, you're going to run into 
a little bit of uh, a sticky issue because as you were like dragging uh, folks for from not only leaning into kind of like British colonial, you know, uh, hatred or whatever, uh, you run into the fact that the founding fathers of these United States, with which that same crowd find a lot of, uh, you know, uh, difference and difficulty, it was British colonial power. Right. That that group that they came together to throw off. So, you know, it's history is complex uh, and complicated. And one of the things that helps us uh, move forward and try to build a better future uh, is some capacity for um, for reconciliation. Uh, and, and reconciliation sometimes, especially when you're looking at some at the, the depth of the problem, something like British colonialism, reconciliation can take a long, long time. Uh, but that's what it takes to move forward. Uh, so you might run into that trouble, uh, trying to sort out who's more evil, the founding fathers or British colonial power, or we could seek a path of, of, of reconciliation that allows us to hold people accountable, seek justice, uh, but also appreciate that which uh, is to be appreciated. Very important. And I would just leave with this. If Nelson Mandela can find a way not to be hateful about it all after all he went through, why can't you? And what is your commentary about other people who show some sympathy? What is the implications that that would have on his perspective? Something to think about. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend Christopher Butler. Uh, Chris, I read a pretty interesting article the other day in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson. Um... And I recommend everybody who's listening to us right now take the time to read this article. The article was entitled America is a rich death trap. That's right. America is a rich death trap. He starts off by saying for citizens of a wealthy country, Americans of every age at every income level are usually likely to die from are unusually likely to die. Excuse me, from guns, drugs, cars and disease. The National uh, Center for Health Statistics recently released data showing that American life expectancy is falling. And it's not just because of the pandemic. Of course, we would expect due to the pandemic that life expectancy would be different. But even outside of that, even when we compare that to other countries, we still have a problem. Thompson says life expectancy is perhaps the most important statistic on the planet, synthesizing a country's scientific advances policy errors, and social sins into a single number. 
and the U.S. fared worse in life expectancy than other high-income countries. Before the 1990s, an average life expectancy in the U.S. was not much different than it was in Germany or the United Kingdom. But according to data comparing U.S. and European mortality, American babies are more likely to die before they turn five. American teens are more likely to die before they turn 20. And American adults are more likely to die before they turn 65. Europe has better life outcomes than the United States across the board for white and black people in poverty air in in high poverty areas and low poverty areas, says nor a Northwestern uh, University economist. Now, again, this article points out things like gun deaths. It talks about obesity. It talks about our healthcare failures. It talks about cars. It talks about drugs and disease. And I think when we read this and look at it on the whole, Chris, this is embarrassing. And this is worse than embarrassing. It's deeply, deeply sad. Because what you and I know and what you and I talk about quite a bit is that we're not fixing a lot of these problems because we have a broken system. We're not even having good faith debates about a lot of these problems because we're talking about all kinds of other stuff. We're talking about Trump. We got to talk. And I'm not saying we can't, we shouldn't be talking about January 6th, but we got to talk about January 6th. We got to talk about all this other stuff instead of dealing with something that should be completely unacceptable in the country, in a country as prosperous as this country is. We have some very deep problems. Now, the answers that are given for these problems, I think some of them are good. I'm not with all of them, right? You know, you you got a lot of stuff. I mean, there's some good stuff talking about the environment, us driving cars and and things of that nature, healthcare. I'm with that's cool. Um, And even conversation about the gun debate. You know, we I'm all about sensible measures when it comes to guns. But I don't think there was enough talk in this article about family right and and how the breakdown you know breakdowns in the family have an, have an impact on this about community and how breakdowns in our community and us really just living in these uh lifestyle enclaves rather than really living in communities where we're communicating with people we didn't talk enough about church and the 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 how you know people not being uh, as religious as they were may have an impact on this and we didn't it didn't talk enough to me about consumerism so i think there's some impacts and some things going on in america not mentioned in this article that have a major impact on what's going on in addition to what's mentioned uh uh by thompson in the article chris what did you take from this article and what are generally are your thoughts yeah, so when I read the article, uh, the the first time I was uh, I was hoping that we we wouldn't talk about this on uh, the church politics podcast because I don't. So I think the 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 identification of the problem is absolutely right. I hundred percent agree that it is um, it's shameful that we have this uh, that our life expectancy. Uh, is headed in the wrong direction, um, and that it is uh, worse than all other uh, wealthy nations in the world. Uh, that is a huge problem. It's a huge embarrassment. Um, but I, I did not like the direction of uh, of the article much at all. Not that I hundred percent disagree with the solutions that I propose, but um, if if you say that life expectancy is the worst in the United States um, 
com- compared to all of the other wealthy nations of the world. Um, and then immediately go to talking about, well, you know, the pandemic was worse here because the uh, political right, you know, was putting out misinformation about vaccines and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and then, you, you know, it talks a lot about, you know, it, it diagnoses this issue of cars, uh, but pairs it in, in a strange way, in my view, to uh, urbanization. And so when I got that article, I'm like, so the solution to this is urbanization, healthcare expansion, and gun control. Yeah. I, I just don't think that that's, uh, that's real, right? So, I mean, like, when, when you come to, like, vaccination, the political right was not the only uh, vaccine-hesitant group in the United States. Black people were probably the most vaccine hesitant. The article itself even points out that Native Americans and Alaskan Natives had the sharpest uh, decline because those communities were also um, very hesitant about the vaccine. Um, because uh, like marginalized people in the United States don't have access to health care, have had a lot of reason over uh, the years to be distrustful of the health care system. So that wasn't like a political right issue. That was a trust issue when it comes to uh, to healthcare, which goes back into the kind of thing that you were just talking about. What are we doing in our communities? Um, is, is that social fabric uh, still there? Um, and then you 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 talk about uh, you know guns and cars. Uh, I don't know that a lot of our car deaths have as much to do with the fact that people that we're in our cars more than other people. I think that pairs more closely with the drug and alcohol problem, right? It's not that we drive more. I mean, we may drive more, but it's probably a bigger problem that we drive high and drunk more <laughs> than other people. And and those alcohol issues and drug issues are going to go back into those issues about family, about community. Um, you know, like we, we have a culture problem, right? Uh, not to say that we don't have like a, a policy uh, problem. I'm I'm a proponent of healthcare expansion. I'm a proponent. Well, can of- I stop you real quick? You do understand you can only say certain groups have a culture problem. You can't say everybody has a culture problem. Only <laughs> certain groups are you're allowed. You're only allowed to critique the culture of certain groups. So, so before you go too far, Chris, I know. That's why I, I, I was hoping when I first read it that you didn't choose this um, because I, I just thought that the that the article mostly got it wrong. Um, that if we're going to talk about life expectancy in the United States, I think you got to start with a conversation about what has happened to uh, our society and what has happened to our culture. Because while I am uh, a, a fairly big proponent of a lot of what would amount to a um, progressive policy agenda, right? I'm for... Um, reasonable gun control. I'm for uh, health care expansion. I'm for, uh, you know, investing in uh, affordable housing. I'm for all of those things. Um, but it's not like we used to have fewer guns in America than the rest of the world. America has always been more guns than the rest of the world. Um, America's always been more uh, you know, pro-freedom, individual liberty uh, than the rest of the world. Um, those things have baked into the culture of the United States. Um, the shift that we have seen uh, is our, is the, the falling apart of 
um, a lot of that uh, sort of social and, and family dynamic. And, and I'm, I'm the first to admit that a lot of that happened in the process of people fighting against real injustice, where real people were suffering real uh, uh, oppression and injustice. But this is, again, where that, uh, I'm, I don't want to overuse the, the phrase in one podcast, but this is, again, where moral imagination has to come in. You've got to be able to discern between uh, systems and uh, uh, structures that are unjust and oppressive and need to be torn down and, and restructured uh, and those uh, elements of, of our uh, society and cultural life that are actually um, pillars and need to be passed along from generation to generation uh, and, and figure out how to renew and revive those uh, types of institutions uh, generation to generation rather than just try to push through them uh, and destroy them. And so, yeah, I, I, I read the article. I thought it got a, a lot wrong, um, enough wrong for me to come away from the article like, yeah. So I recommended that everybody read it. It sounds like Chris is saying, ah, <laughs> you don't have to uh, throw away other better articles to read it. I, I would agree with you in this, Chris. I think the I think Thompson jumped way too quickly after giving the facts. He jumped way too quickly into a progressive narrative and progressive agenda. So due to these facts, we must do this without really showing why we should do exactly what he's saying we should do. OK, the urbanization thing. Right. He's saying there's not enough housing in urban spaces, which forced everybody to move further away, which means they have to drive more. Is the answer really making our cities more dense? And I will say, because I'm, I'm in Chicago, we're, we're actually dealing with these. You know, I, I worked with uh, Roosevelt University Hospital. And the, the fact is that the people who are living closer to the city center um, are actually much more unhealthy. If you look at life expectancy on a micro level here in the Chicago region, people in the suburbs who do commute are actually, uh, you know, th their life expectancy is higher, right? So moving more people into the city is not necessarily um, right. a solution here. So, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that was a rhetorical question, but I do appreciate you answering it, sir, because I think it, it, bear, it does bear. Yeah, I just want to put that claim for our listeners. Like, no, nah, I like that. I, 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 I can dig it. A solution. It's just not. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think it's run. I, I don't. I think it's oversubscribed. You have all this other. You have all these other places that are dying out, and we're forcing everybody into, you know, ten cities. That needs to me. That needs to be rethought. And so to say that we're dying because of that, that was a lot. He just, you know, he jumped into a lot of stuff that I, I didn't necessarily make those connections. But I did want to point out when I brought this up, the lack of focus on family, these deaths of despair. Do the things that he names really stop these deaths of despair, which are drug overdoses, which are suicides and the things that are really impacting uh, uh, certain demographics? I don't think you touch on that. And again, it, it 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 jumps into things that can be polarizing, but aren't necessarily the right answers. What gets me about all of this is I know that we're not even spending enough time on a good faith debate on it. We got, you know, we got folks trying to bring Trump back into office. You know what I mean? We got all these 
these things like like th- that's not going to get that's not going to help us move forward. That's not going to help us fix some of these problems we really need to address. And that's really what hurt me about seeing the numbers, seeing the data and getting that data put out there. I think he has some answers that make some sense in, gen- you know, there there are some things, as I said before, that I, I totally disagree with. I would have had a different focus in general. But my point is we need to deal with it. We really need to process these numbers and we need to deal with what's going on. Of course, I would hope y'all don't read an article or even an article that we recommend and think that means that's a, a full endorsement. But 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 again, I, I still think it's worth reading. Uh, but I'll let Chris uh, take us out of this uh, segment. Now, I, I absolutely think that it's worth reading because it it, uh, it lays out the problem, I think, really well uh, in, in the front of the article. And it should give us uh, pause, even, even reading the article, even, even if I think it serves more of a counterexample in terms of how we should be dealing with this, uh, this issue. You have to ask yourself, like, what in the world is going on if the United States of America is experiencing a decline in life expectancy? And we have a congressional commission on January 6th and no congressional commission on life expectancy. Yep. And I'm going to point this out again. We have a party in the Republican Party because we've been on progressives a little bit on this this particular show that has come up with no real plan for health care. That is, to me, political malpractice. They said they were going to come up with something because they had plenty of, you know, issues with Obamacare, which was not perfect. But if you don't come up with something better and all you do is, is taken away again, to me, that is malpractice when it comes to policymaking. Yeah, you really want to see solutions there. And on the commission side, like you have a party that has promised up to this point, if if you if they take the House, then we're going to see investigations into the Justice Department and, you know, what was going on with the FBI and all those types of things. They haven't promised a commission on life expectancy. Um, and so we have to figure out a way as, uh, you know, like rank and file citizens of the United States to begin to refocus our um, civic and public discourse. Um, I might be naive on this point, but I still am a believer uh, in the idea that, uh a an organized group of regular people can actually make a difference uh, in the United States. Uh, so I'm, I'm still hopeful for that. But these are the types of things that we need to be bringing to the fore. And it, it's going to take us ignoring a lot of the distraction uh, and the sideshow that has made its way onto the main stage, unfortunately, in our civics and politics. And and, and not just ignore it, disincentivizing the foolishness that, that goes on in Congress, disincentivizing people like Mitch McConnell coming along saying, hey, we're just trying to stop something. Do you know how much people are suffering and you just playing politics? I got an issue with that. But anyway, we will be back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Again, it's Justin Gibney, uh, the co-founder and president of the AND Campaign, and it's the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Um, so I know some of y'all have been following us for a while. And for, for those of you that have, you know that the AND Campaign uh, did a lot of work addressing and educating people uh, in regard to the Equality Act. Um, the Equality Act was a piece of legislation promoted by the left, which would place sexual orientation and gender identity into the Civil Rights Act. This meant that Jewish, Muslim, and Christian organizations that didn't change their family and sexual ethics could be sued into non-existence. That's straight up one of the consequences, could have been one of the consequences of this passing. Uh, it meant that if this were to pass, and it was on high on Biden's agenda, it was passed through the House, but it didn't make it through the Senate, and we'll get to that. Uh, if this would have been passed, that meant, that would have meant that poor kids who attended faith-based schools would would have had their federally funded free lunches taken away. That our young people who went to Christian colleges would have been ineligible for Pell Grants simply because people are upholding um, long lasting beliefs that, you know, humanity, many people in humanity have had for years and years and years. Right. Um it was very plainly bad legislation. And I think Chris would agree with me on that. The Equality Act unnecessarily pitted religious liberty against LGBTQ rights uh, and created a false dichotomy that I didn't I don't necessarily think it had to. Um, it just wasn't as thoughtful as it could have been. But the AND campaign and our, our coalition of partners didn't just say no to the Equality Act. We did think it was important to say this needs to stop. This doesn't need to go any further. It doesn't need to be enacted. But we didn't just say no. We weren't just saying what we're against. What we tried to do was offer an, an alternative called the Fairness for All Act that protected LGBT, the LGBTQ community from discrimination on the job, from discrimination in housing and banking, which to me was very important. I don't think anybody, any community in America should um, not be protected in those areas. But what it also did in the Fairness for All Act was not just have protection for the LGBTQ community. It also had protection for religious liberty. So we saw and actually doing what democracy is supposed to do and thinking through something based on uh, the Utah compromise between the LGBTQ community and, and Mormons in Utah. We came up with good legislation, thoughtful legislation. Uh, I think it was a model of civic pluralism that allowed, again, protection for our LGBTQ neighbors without tearing down religious institutions that disagree. These communities may always have disagreements, but that doesn't mean that we can't live in a way where we're protecting one another uh, and protecting one and, and 
uh, respecting one another's consciences. And that's what we've tried to do. So as of right now, the situation is that the Equality Act is not moving forward. It got through the House um, probably too quickly than it should have. Uh, I, I know for a fact personally that there were Christian uh, legislators that voted for it that did not know the implications of what they voted for. And that's unfortunate. So it gets through the House. It does not uh, get through the Senate. It doesn't look like it's moving forward in the Senate. So where we are right now is we're still fighting for the Fairness for All Act. Um, and in the same vein, what's going on now is that Senator Baldwin and Senator Collins are pushing for the Respect for Marriage Act. And the Respect for Marriage Act uh, would codify uh, same-sex marriage into law, into federal law. According to Politico, Baldwin, along with a small group of Republican senators uh, and Kirsten Sinema, uh, they are working to secure enough GOP votes for the bill to break the legislative filibuster. So, you know, it's not just 50 50 in the Senate. You can filibuster, which means they would need to get 60 votes. Republican support is hinging on a bipartisan religious freedom amendment that aims to ensure the bill would not infringe upon 1993 religious freedom law. That religious freedom law was signed. That's RIFRA, uh, which was signed into law by Bill Clinton, a Democrat. OK, Baldwin says that senators are tweaking the amendment and continue to shop it around to the likely Republicans who would support the bill. Uh, they're expected to vote on this, Chris. Uh, on this Respect for Marriage Act sometime next week. So that's when we expect cloture uh, on that issue. Um, now, I want to be very clear that the and campaign stance on marriage has not changed. We are not promoting uh, this particular law. Our focus has mainly been within the coalition to say, hey, how can we add the necessary language to this uh, to make it so that it doesn't end up hurting religious liberty? And that's the conversation we've been having. But one of the things that I always want to point out about this issue, this LGBTQ rights and religious liberty is how we can actually come to solutions when we stop and think. What happens too much, and you know this, Chris, is we hand, you know, once a coalition or a constituency wants something, really what happens is you hand the law to them, have them write it out. And if if they're your supporters, you just push what they what they what they gave you. That's not a good way to go about democracy. This zero sum, all or nothing. A way of doing it. That's what the Equality Act represented. And I think the Fairness for All represented something very different for Christians who, who maintain their sexual ethic to say, no, no, that doesn't mean in any way that I want my neighbors in the LGBTQ community discriminated against. I'm not going to stand for that. It's, it's not OK for for one group to have the rights and another not to have it. And so that's what we what we've been trying to do. And we spent a lot of time, Chris, doing that. Anything you want to add just about this this conversation? Yeah, man, I think it's a very uh, important conversation. It's one that I feel like I've been having more. Um, but two things that, that I'll point out. One, this is what the Congress is supposed to do, right? Um, one of the reasons why I think uh, we have sort of, that, that has forced um, the judicial branch of our federal government um, into very difficult spots uh that have frankly cost it some of its cachet and um, support, perhaps even legitimacy uh, in the, the public discourse, um, is, is that the Congress has not been uh, able to actually legislate and, and make laws, right? Like this, uh, 
dealing with with this issue of, of marriage um, is really not something that should be left to the courts. It's, it, this is what the Congress uh, is elected to do. Um, so from that perspective, I'm glad to see uh, that somebody in the Congress is having conversation about this. Um, second thing that I would point out is that, uh, at, at least in my view, and you might, uh, you know, disagree with me on this. Other people who listen to the podcast might be uh, disagree with me on this. But in my view, uh, being uncompromising about your values does not translate into an unwillingness or an inability to reach legislative agreements. Um, you have to, in the context of a legislature, um, I think, seek to, to protect um, the essentials. Right. Um, and and, to, and I think you should seek to move the society as far in the direction of what you believe is right uh, as is possible to do in the context of the legislature where you uh, are working. Uh, and, but I don't think that being uncompromising on your values should translate into an inability or an unwillingness to reach legislative agreements. I think that you can reach a legislative agreement that does not fully embody your values um, without having compromised those values uh, in, in, uh, in, in real serious ways. Uh, and I think that uh, that understanding um, uh, that that zero sum doesn't work on either side. It certainly doesn't work when, uh, you know, something like the Equality Act to me would represent folks who I disagree with uh, taking a zero sum approach. Uh, but I don't think that the people who I agree with uh, can in the legislature take a zero sum approach. Um, and I think that that's something very important for us to uh to wrestle with is one of the reasons uh, that I really love the AND campaign is because we do have. Um, an, an uncompromising approach to our values. And inside of those values, uh, we have uh, a commitment to a civic pluralism. Uh, and I, I think that it's going to take that commitment and that level of moral imagination to make our government work. Um, and so I'll, I'll just repeat it again, because maybe there might be uh, somebody listening who participates in some way in some legislative environment. Uh, and I will say it one last time. I don't think that being uncompromising about your values means that you can't reach a legislative agreement. And I would just add to that. You can love somebody and protect them and disagree with them on serious issues. Well, as always, guys, we appreciate y'all tuning in to the Church Politics Podcast. We got some changes coming and probably an announcement that we might make next week that I think y'all will be excited about. So as usual, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. I'll let you. Somebody say kingdom. kingdom. Oh, Lord. I say kingdom. kingdom. Come through me. Rest in me. Kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. 
called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.